Psalm 62. Psalm 62. And as you turn to Psalm 62 this morning, we're going to start a series on the importance and the practice of quietness in our prayers. Now, the fact that we're talking about putting quietness and prayer together, that might surprise some of you. But as we'll see as the series goes on, Jesus puts these two things together a lot in the Bible. Quietness, stillness, silence. These are all words that the Bible uses, and they're all important to our communion with Jesus. Uh, now, this series is the fruit of my own study that I began because I realized that uh, I had a problem. Uh, when unexpected things happened, when I was afraid, overwhelmed, surprised, overtired, anxious, worried, um, you know, adulting, as the kids say, uh, I would react and not respond. And for those who may not be familiar with the distinction, a reaction is an unconsidered action that's produced by instinct, culture, and habit. So when something happens that tries our patience, we can have a physical reaction like pushing people, slamming cabinet doors, or laying on the horn and going, come on, you moron! Our kids have, my kids have, have heard that before. Yelling and insults, also reactions. You don't think about the words or your tone of voice. No, you just open your mouth and the instincts you have, the, the culture that you're uh, in, the habits you've cultivated, that simply produce an almost automatic reply of angry words with an angry tone of voice. Or uh, maybe someone said something that bothered you and you reacted, not with yelling and anger, but with a sweet tone of voice that carried a remark that you knew was going to cut deep into the heart of the person who bothered you. Shaming, manipulation, cutting someone down, cutting someone off, insults, giving someone the silent treatment, these can all be reactions, just unconsidered replies to the pressures and struggles and changes of life. And the Lord brought to my attention that my reactions were, surprisingly, uh, not always very godly and grace-filled and kingdom-building. And so I set off to learn how to become someone who responds rather than reacts. And just so you can know, by response, I mean a considered action formed by faith. A considered action formed by faith. It's choosing to speak or stay silent, to act or not to act, to choose a tone of voice or, a, or assume a physical posture that makes Jesus happy in the situation. It's choosing a reply of faithfulness rather than a reaction of frustration or fear or anger. And as I was studying and trying to learn this way of living from Jesus, I wound up in Psalm 62. And here I learned that the practice of quietness and prayer is a root of faithful response. It is a way that our hearts grow deeply into the, the waters of Christ's grace so that we can be transformed into those who respond faithfully rather than react fearfully. And this has been life-changing for me. Maybe not as quickly as my family and friends want it to be, but it has been. 
uh, learning how to pray in quietness and stillness and learning how to practice that regularly is something that God has used to change me and will use to change us from reactors to responders. And this kind of faith-filled prayer uh, form, uh, forms faithful actions that makes Jesus happy because, again, it grows the roots of our hearts more deeply into the transforming waters of Christ's grace. And so what I want to do this morning is look at quietness and prayer, uh, what it means, what it is, and then I want to look at what quietness and prayer gives us, and then finally I want to talk about how to start incorporating this practice into your own daily life. And again, we are going to be on this topic, not in this psalm, but on this topic for about a month and a half, so there's going to be lots to say. Uh, the outline is there on the wall. Let's read Psalm 62, pray, and then we'll reflect on this some more. So Psalm 62, to the choir master, according to Jedithon, a psalm of David, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse Selah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. Together, they are lighter than air. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. Thus far, the reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, we very much want your word to change us and to root us deeply in Jesus so that we can respond faithfully to the trials and tribulations and just the unexpected events of life. But Father, we know that, your, uh, that our desires will not be fulfilled unless your word is written on our hearts by your spirit. And so, Father, we therefore pray that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to respond to your word. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher, and may the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word, may it all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin looking at what quietness in prayer means, notice that the psalmist is choosing to respond to the problems in his life rather than react to them. And very clearly, the psalmist has problems. In verse 3, he says, How long will you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence? So the psalmist sees himself as a wall that once stood strong and tall and firm, and as a fence that was once resilient and able to keep things in their proper place, but has now become weak and frail. 
Uh, he's tottering, which kids means he's waving back and forth, and he feels like he could fall down at any moment. He's weak, and he's vulnerable. And in that exposed, frail, weak position, there are people who are trying to knock him over. There are people who want to hurt him and want to see him fail. And then related to that, I also want you to notice that the psalmist is not being physically attacked. He's being verbally attacked. That's verse 4. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. People are telling lies about the psalmist in their hearts and in their private conversations behind the psalmist's back. But they cover their lies by speaking well of the psalmist in public or to his face. Because, of course, as some of you probably know, this allows them to claim innocence while simultaneously working to tear them down. And I don't know if you've ever been on the other end of this kind of attack. I have. Uh, And I can tell you it puts you in a very hard position because when you try to expose the lies, they point out all the nice things they've said in public. And since a majority of the people have only heard the good things that they said about you, they have a hard time believing you. It makes you sound petty at best and unforgiving at worst. And then when you try to get the people who have been told the lies to back you up and reveal the lies and confirm your story, they understand that if they do that, they will be treated the same way that you have been treated. And they don't want to be ostracized or put outside of the the inner ring of that circle. Or they realize that they will have to own responsibility for the way in which they joined in with that particular attack and those particular lies. And that scares them. And so they don't do it. They don't reveal the lies And this context creates a sense of fear for your reputation and your job and your place in your community. Anger at the fact that you would be treated this way. Frustration at feeling helpless and unable to make any kind of changes. And the natural human desire is to escape those feelings by creating some kind of of change so you can feel safe again and happy again and in control again. Now, notice that the psalmist ends this section with the word selah, which means either that you should go back and repeat the section again. So if you were singing it, if we were singing the psalm, it would be like a return in music where you go back to the beginning and you start over and you sing through it again. Or, and this is what I think it means in this psalm, it means to pause and reflect on this section. So here you are in a situation that is out of your control with people who are trying to hurt you and are doing so in a way that makes exposing them very hard to do. And you're vulnerable and you're angry and you're frustrated. Selah. Reflect on this. Face it. That's what the psalmist is doing and what he's inviting us to do. And in that, he's already helping us move from reaction to response, isn't he? Don't react. Don't yell or push or avoid or whatever you might instinctively do to try to create change or take control. Instead, take everything, face it squarely, 
admit your own feelings and your own attitudes and your heart and your own thoughts about it and then take it take do that all in the presence of Jesus sit in the presence of Jesus in the in the honesty of the situation and that's the beginning isn't it verse 1 for God alone my soul waits in silence and this is so important it's actually the beginning of the next section too verse 5 for God alone, my soul, wait in silence. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, here in Psalm 62, silence or quietness or stillness, it's a form of prayer that does two things. It reserves our reactions and it restrains our responses. It reserves our reactions and it restrains our responses. So first, Waiting in silence means that we reserve our reactions for God. That's verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. For the psalmist, silence is first being silent before people so that we can be vocal to God in prayer. Being silent before the people we're frustrated with, before our community, before our friends, before our family, first, so that we can first be vocal to God in prayer. And this is very important to becoming people who respond for the sake of Christ and his kingdom rather than react out of a sense of fear and hurt and control. So rather than yell or manipulate or slam glasses down on the counter, rather than try to force people to do the right thing, rather than try to take control of the situation, the psalmist says to wait in silence by pouring out your heart to God in private prayer because Jesus is a refuge for his people. But that's not all that silence is. Silence isn't simply reserving your reactions for God first. It's also about restraining your actions until you've sat with God long enough to get security and hope and perspective. You see, in the Bible, there's a point, and I've learned it comes regularly, not only in prayer, but also in conversation, where prayer naturally just becomes quietness because you've said the words you have to say. Where words cease, and we simply have the opportunity to wait in silence with Jesus, whose presence by his Spirit gives us security and hope and perspective so that when the time to respond arrives, and it will arrive, it always arrives, we can respond faithfully. So after you've poured out your heart to God and you've given him all the words and emotions you have, we have two options. We can say amen and go off and do what we plan to do, or we can stay and wait quietly in the presence of Jesus. Now, most of the time, you and I, we, we basically treat prayer this way. Lord, I'm so mad. I'm so frustrated. I can't believe this. I should go out there and I should do this and I should say this and I should do that. Yeah, that's all I have. Amen. And I'm off to go do it. Now imagine, just by the way, imagine doing this in a conversation with another human being. You come into the room with your spouse, your best friend. I'm so mad. I can't believe this. I have this plan. I'm out of words. Bye. And you walk out. The other person in the room is going to be like, hey, wait, hold on a second. <laughs> pause, stop. Now that you've vented your spleen a little bit, as they used to say back in the early 1900s, let's be calm. 
the psalmist calls us after we've cleared our our hearts and minds of all of our feelings to wait in the presence of Jesus twice as we've seen for God alone my soul waits in silence and while that silence can feel uncomfortable and that's one of the reasons why I think we normally choose to just say amen and walk off and do what we plan to do anyway the psalmist wants us to stay and endure that discomfort for a moment and sit wordlessly with Jesus for a while. My soul wait for God alone, my soul waits in silence. Because it's in that quietness, it's in that silence, having emptied ourselves of all of our words and fears and feelings, that now the presence of Jesus can fill us with security. If you look at verses 1 and 2, you'll see that quietly waiting in the presence of Jesus fills the psalmist with confidence that Jesus is his rock and his salvation and his fortress. And that though he may be battered and attacked, he will not fall. That's the end of verse 2. I will not be greatly shaken. Having emptied out to God in prayer all the lies, all the deceit, all the false blessings he's heard, all the dangers, all his anger, all his frustration, all his sadness, all his helplessness. He now sits in the presence of Jesus wordless because he said all that he has to say. There's just no more words left. And there he discovers that Jesus' presence makes him know the security that he has and not simply know it in his head, but know it in his heart. The psalmist actually feels secure as he sits silently in the presence of Jesus. And that feeling of security, that confidence in Jesus being a refuge, provides then a platform for the psalmist to respond faithfully to those who seek to hurt him. Have you ever wondered how can someone turn the other cheek, having been struck, to offer the other one, without hatred or the desire for vengeance have you ever wondered how someone can be angry and not sin we're going to talk about that more in a couple weeks you can do that if you feel safe in jesus if you know in the deep parts of your heart and soul and mind that jesus is your rock and your refuge and that his steadfast love will never leave you or forsake you, verse 12. It becomes the foundation of endurance, and it becomes the foundation of love for your enemies. See, quietness in prayer helps us receive security from the presence of Jesus, which we need if we are to act faithfully and respond faithfully to those who are treating us poorly. And it also gives us the hope that we need to act faithfully. Uh, when I talk about quietness in prayer, you might be like me when I first started studying all of this. You might be afraid that quietness is going to mean something like silent endurance of suffering forever until you die. <laughs> Praise God, that is not what quietness, stillness, and silence in prayer is meant to lead us to. It's meant to lead us to hope to the assurance that God is with us to bring about salvation, that he will act to bring change 
that he will bring resurrection life and that he will make all things new because he is the God who saves his people and raises the dead. And therefore, we can act faithfully because the God of the resurrection is with us and stands behind and in those faithful actions. The hope of the gospel in response comes from quietness and prayer. That's verses 5 through 7. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation, my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. See, the psalmist knows that as he sits quietly in the presence of Jesus, that the security of Jesus' presence and love will produce the hope of resurrection life in him. That Jesus will act to save. That Jesus will act to change. That Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive and risen. And he is not distant, but he is near. Because Jesus, as we talked about last week, is the same yesterday and today and forever. And he does not leave his people to languish, but acts to save them. And there is no power on earth or heaven that can stop him. God will uphold the psalmist so that he will not fall. And God will uphold us so that we will not fall. And God will act to expose the lies and bring the truth to light. And, and this is part of the hope, do something that only Jesus can do, which is take enemies and redeem them into friends. In verse 11, the psalmist says this, and it, it kind of feels like it comes out of the blue, but it's very important. He says, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. By themselves, you might take those statements as simply meaning that God has the power to save the psalmist, but together and in the most common places where they appear, those sayings are about not only about God's ability to save his people, but to redeem his enemies to them, to save the nations into Israel, to not simply deliver from Egypt, as we see in Exodus, but also to bring a number of Egyptians out with them in that Exodus. The Lord's power and his steadfast love together are not only about saving his people from difficulty, but about redeeming our enemies to us. And by sitting quietly in the presence of Jesus in prayer, the psalmist not only gains the sense of security, he gains the hope of Jesus saving him and even saving those who are harming him. Jesus tells us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. The psalmist actually learns how to do that honestly, openly, and really through this practice of quietness and prayer. Which is all to say that sitting quietly in the presence of Jesus in prayer helps the psalmist gain perspective about his life and the events that are going on in it. Uh, we're running low on time, so I'm just going to say uh, that in verses 9 through 10, the psalmist puts both the poor and the rich, the politically powerful, the politically weak, the healthy and the sick, that's, the, that's what all those words mean there, on the same sky, side of a scale, a balanced scale. And he says that they go up together, because together, 
they are lighter than air. So that invites the question, what's on the other side of the scale? What's weighing down that side? What is more important than health and monetary security and political power? Faithfulness. How do I know that? Well, the psalmist goes on in verse 10 to tell us not to put our trust in unfaithful practices. So extortion, which is violence, robbery, money. He calls them vain hopes and things not to set your heart on. They are weightless delusions. Now, if you think about the way we would normally load this scale, normally if we had a scale here with you know, a bar and change and two plates, we would put health, wealth, security, good reputation on one side, that's the important side. And we put sickness, poverty, bad reputation on one side. And when we feel like we're on the bad side, what do we want to do? Get to the other side of the scale. And what are we tempted to do? We are tempted to use things like extortion and robbery and violence. We're tempted to use these kinds of tools, we might even call them reactions, to move from the difficult side to the easy side, to change from one circumstance to another circumstance. The psalmist puts all of these things together on one side of the scale because as he sits quietly in the presence of Jesus and experiences security and regains hope, he gains the perspective that whatever circumstance Jesus gives him, whether it's easy or hard, it's all on one side of the scale, along with our reactive responses, which we want to not put our trust in. And on the other side is faithfulness to Jesus. And that faithfulness is of great value to God. And now the psalmist has sat quietly in the presence of Jesus. It's of great value to him too. And, uh, and just to point this out, there's a pun in this psalm. And it's actually how I figured out this scale image. Verse 7, the psalmist says, God is my glory. Gloriness and heaviness are the same word in Hebrew. These circumstances go up because they are lighter and of less consequence than the glory of God whom he has taken refuge in. As he teaches you and me that we are safe in him, that our hope is in him, and as he gives us the ability to truly see that what matters most is how I live for Jesus, how I respond for his sake in whatever circumstance I find myself in. And that's why he ends, maybe surprisingly at first, maybe not now, with this in verse 12. For you will render to a man according to his work. Now he's not talking about eternal life in heaven. He's not talking about the forgiveness of sins. All he means is that Jesus blesses faithfulness. And quietness in prayer is the way the psalmist regains the ability to respond faithfully rather than react sinfully. You see, quietness in prayer is not about acquiescence to the status quo. It's not grin and bear it. It's about pursuing a response of faithfulness instead of a reaction of impatience or fear or frustration. It's saying, I have all of these emotions, all of these desires, all of these feelings, all of these conflicting perspectives. I have all this pressure. I have all this struggle. So I will be quiet before others so that I can go and be loud with God. 
And then when I've finished being loud and I've said everything I have to say, I can wait in the presence of Jesus because I know that there I will regain my sense of security in his love and my sense of hope in his salvation in my perspective as to what is really important, which is the glory of God as it is revealed by my responses to what's going on. And that brings us to the end, which is uh, how to integrate, how to begin integrating quietness into our prayer life. And this is going to be short because, like I said, we're going to talk about this a whole bunch over the next few weeks. But here's what I did to start including intentionally quietness in my own prayer life because, like for many of you, for me, quietness and silence was very hard and awkward and I didn't like it and I still don't always like it. It's not natural or easy, especially given the constant interruptions of our modern world. So here's what I did to help me get used to it and to take God's word seriously. Uh, I would start by reciting Psalm 62 verse 1, for God alone my soul waits in silence, or more commonly, Psalm 46 verse 10, be still, be quiet, and know that I am God. And then I would set a timer on my phone, which was set to airplane mode so people couldn't interrupt me during prayer, for one to two minutes before I started praying for my family and for you guys and my friends. And during that timer, I would just try to sit and enjoy and acknowledge and just be aware of the presence of Jesus who was already there by his spirit before I started praying. And then sometimes, eventually it got to this point at the end of a particularly hard prayer time because sometimes there's difficult things going on and I'm trying to be loud with God so I'm not loud with people. <laughs> uh, I would finish with all, all of my words and I would just sit in silence with Jesus. And it wasn't super spiritual. It wasn't an hour. It was probably 30 seconds. There was no timer on. It felt like forever, but it was probably 30 seconds. And it's amazing, though. Why? I'm not going to say that I experienced the depths of these things the way the psalmist does in Psalm 62. I absolutely experienced them. It's incredible that Jesus, who is in heaven, actually makes his presence knowable to his people. And I was able to leave that prayer time with a sense of security. Jesus has got this. Jesus has got all of us. A sense of hope. Jesus is risen. He will work. And also a sense of perspective. What matters most is not me getting what's mine, but showing Christ. And the result of all of that has been over this last year, that I started roughly in February of 2022, that I am a little less reactive and a little more responsive than I was, uh, because I've been practicing. I've been practicing how to reserve my reactions for Jesus so that his security and hope and perspective can restrain my responses for his glory. My friends, I hope you'll join me in praying not only for this series on quietness and prayer. Next week, we're going to look at Elijah. Uh, I'm really excited about this sermon. It's really going to be super cool, I hope. Um, I hope you'll pray for this series on quietness and prayer. But I also hope that you'll pray that together we'll learn how to incorporate this into our own prayer lives so that as a congregation, we'll be known as a people who respond faithfully because we are secure in Christ, because we have hope in his salvation. 
and because we have God's perspective on what brings him and his gospel glory in our lives. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we want to be changed and transformed and sanctified so that we can react less and respond more. Uh, we want to be faithful to you, and we want the resurrection hope and security and perspective of Christ to be ours. And so we ask that you would help us to reserve our reactions for our prayers with you so that you can teach us how to respond to what's going on in our lives. And Father, as we pray, help us to learn how to sit silently with you. Uh, and as we do that, please bless us like you did with the psalmist and give us the security and the hope and the perspective of Christ's gospel so that we can exit our prayer time ready to act in ways that please you and further your kingdom. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.